why are we all so eager to not have to work anymore? It seems like the whole focus of a 40-year career at work is the last 15 years of not working. How do companies create a culture and core values that employees actually live out? The team at The Receptionist, a Denver-based software company, sets out to answer that very question. Welcome to The Fabric. Here's your host, Michael Ashford. Why is it acceptable to trash talk work? This question is what drives Gregory Offner, our guest here on this episode of The Fabric. Gregory is a keynote speaker and a workplace strategist focused on one of his greatest passions, workplace engagement. And in this conversation, Gregory and I chat about how he views workplace culture and why he believes more company leaders need to be intentional about helping their employees find purpose and meaning in their roles beyond the paycheck. We also discuss Gregory's new book, The Tip Jar Culture, and how nicely his ideas tie into our core values here at The Receptionist. If you're interested in learning more about what we do and how company culture drives us, consider subscribing to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash The Receptionist app. We're releasing new episodes of The Fabric once a month, along with other great content. And now here's my interview with Gregory Offner. So Greg, you posted today on social media, something that I think is like the perfect kickoff to our conversation, what we're going to talk about. So I just want to read it so that folks listening can have a little bit of context here. And then I want to dive right okay. into it. Among the posts that you posted on LinkedIn, where I saw it, you said, uh, when employees play an active role in crafting their professional environment, engagement and retention skyrocket. They're not passive spectators. They're co-creators of the company culture. You go on to ask the question, are your employees merely working or are they active participants in their professional journey? Why ask that question? Do you see very many companies using the entirety of their employee base and crafting that company culture as you kind of ask the question there? Let's, let's jump right into it, man. <laughs> yeah. I don't see many. I would love to see more. And I asked the question because I don't think it's something executives, really any of us, unless you work in the field that I work in, stop to think about. Uh, I think we sort of just muscle through. And many of our activities when it comes to work are in a way in a sort of or on a sort of autopilot where we go in and we sort of wander through, go through the motions and don't actively reflect on my favorite question is, why are you here today? And that for me is a spinoff of something that was on the mirror in high school. So I went to a military school and we all lived in dorms. They were called barracks because sure, it was a military sure. school. One of the uh, practices we learned was before we left the building, we were to look at our gig line. So how everything lines up on your uniform, that's what it's called, uh, and make sure it was in the correct order. And on top of that uniform uh, or on top of that mirror, rather, was a saying. And the idea behind that saying that I sort of co-opted into why are you here today was to remember that people are paying attention to our actions when we're walking about campus, especially because we were part of the regimental band. So we were kind of the showpiece for the school. We were frequently out at public events. And so the, the question I wish more people would reflect on each day as it comes to work is, you know, why are you here? What is actually the purpose of being here today? It's not just to simply go through the motions and check my email and maybe fill out a couple reports. This is, you're on stage. This is your performance. Are you taking an active role in crafting it? Or are you just simply sitting back as a passive consumer of the experience? 
Greg, when you talk about um, that, we we have a tendency to just muscle through it. Are you talking about just our day to day jobs? Are you talking about creating a company culture? What are you referencing there? I mean, Michael, I'm not a life coach, but I'd say you could apply that broadly to some people <laughs> and how they approach life. Yeah. But so <laughs> focused back on work more squarely, it is a rare breed who see work as an opportunity. Many, if pressed, would describe work as more of an obligation. It's simply what they do to provide for their family. And I'm not knocking that. We all have to provide and life costs money. Yep. But I think that it's a and not an or scenario that we can make money and make an impact. We don't have to discern between the two, but in order to do that, we need to ask these reflective questions. Why am I here? What can I contribute? And so to that end, I believe that if the paycheck is the most valuable thing one gets from their employment, they should really take a critical eye and look at what they're doing because it's probably not the best fit for them. I got to ask the question, um, is there some privilege in being able to ask that question and do something about it? You know, maybe. I'm, I'm, I'm open to the idea that that's, that that's the case, but, or I should say, and I'm open to the idea that that's the case and yeah. YouTube, the internet has really democratized information. So anyone could stumble upon a video that tells the story of a janitor at school, or I think it's at NASA. And, and when maybe it was when president Kennedy was coming through and, and said, you know, and what do you do here? And he said, I'm, I'm helping the rocket ship get to the moon. I think it's a matter of perspective. So I'm not saying that you, you know, that, that, that you should drop everything and go find a job that puts purpose first. But I'm saying that if we look hard enough and we take time to reflect, we can find purpose in anything. I was just sitting feeding. So I have an eight month old daughter. This is great that this just happened. <laughs> I was literally just feeding her her bottle. She woke up from her nap one o'clock here in Philly. Um, I do have the privilege of working from home so I can do this. But when I was sitting there feeding her the bottle, I mean, she's eight months old. I actually pulled out my phone and started to record a video. It's something I've been trying to do as a parent is to record these moments where I'm speaking to my daughter while she's in the video. And it's something that I intend to give her when she gets older. So these are my thoughts about being a parent while in the moment or something that just happened. And so I pulled out my phone and I said, you know, I've been trying to get emotional recounting the story. I don't know how many more of these I have left. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many more times you're going to want me to hold you while you hold the bottle because you're becoming more independent. You sort of slap my hand away now and want to hold the bottle by yourself. And something that I've enjoyed as you've grown up is you lock eyes with me when you consume this food. And it's a special moment that we have. And with my first child, it was a bit of an annoyance to me. I'm sort of embarrassed to say this, but it was sort of like, God, I have so many other things to do. Like, come on, eat the bottle. Let's go. And this is our last, it's decidedly our last child. And I see this as such a privilege. My perspective has shifted. Mm. And I, I was recording the video sort of lamenting that, gosh, this may be one of the last times when we're actually having this moment where we lock eyes because she's also now becoming more curious and staring about the room. And I am less into, this is sort of selfish, I guess. <laughs> I am less interesting to her than the surroundings in the room. And so what I'm trying to say when sharing that story is that my belief may come from a place of privilege. I believe that if one does have privilege, they have an obligation to use it to help mm. others, whatever that privilege is. 
I think that's part of what makes this community of humans living on the planet capable of great things. So perhaps my opportunity to use that privilege is to say, if we simply pause, even for a moment, and reflect and search for the purpose in what we're doing, no matter what that thing is, we could find it. And that in and of itself can make work more meaningful, allow someone to take an active role in creating an experience that has more meaning, whether you're a janitor or a CEO. Yeah, Greg, I, I, uh, I, I'm pretty sure I can remember the last time I carried my children up to bed. They go up on their own now. They're, they're, you know, 13 and 11 as we're recording this and I don't carry them up to bed anymore. <laughs> uh, but getting back on the topic of, I guess, work as you, as you so eloquently did there, let's, let's backtrack a little bit. Greg, why do you care about this? Why is this something that you've dedicated your career? You're, you've got a new book out, uh, you're, you're on stages. Why, why are we talking about this right now? That is a very deep question. And the answer is not at my fingertips, but I'll try to get there by explaining. I lived sort of two lives prior to 2015. When I graduated college, YouTube didn't exist. And I didn't frankly have the courage to go plant my flag and say to the world, I want to be an entertainer. I want to be a musician and damn it, I'm going to find a way. So I did what was economical and what felt comfortable sort of going along with the crowd of graduates. And I got a job in sales, which was nice, very nice for me because it allowed me some freedoms that other jobs don't yeah. have. It allowed me the opportunity to dictate my earnings based on my performance. And so I was able to make more money than some of my colleagues. I lived a very nice life thanks to my day job, but I was very deeply unfulfilled by what I was doing. It's, it's a fine job, but I felt like I had more to offer and I didn't know what that looked like or what form it took. I was actually fairly lazy and didn't even try to figure out what, <laughs> what it might look like. I just said, well, I'm going to go to bars and just enjoy my life. And while I was at one of those bars, I got an offer to perform. It was a piano bar. And after playing a few songs, the owner said, would you like to work here? And so now all of a sudden I had this day job that paid the bills and this night job that paid the spiritual bills, yeah. if you will. In 2015, I suffered a vocal cord injury while performing. Um, that required multiple surgeries. Doctors were pretty certain I was never going to sing again, and it would take these surgeries simply to restore my speaking voice. But after the better part of a decade spent going in and out of operating rooms, 15 surgical procedures on my vocal cords, I was able to regain the ability to speak and to sing, not as resilient or as, as well as I could before, but well enough. And during that process of surgeries, when I spent months in silence and couldn't communicate and couldn't participate with the world, I had this privilege to pause and look back at my career and wonder why I was so unhappy losing a job that didn't pay very well because I lost my job at the piano bar. You can't sing. You really can't be employed at a piano bar as a performer. And I also lost my job in sales because I couldn't speak and I couldn't go out with the same resilience and do meeting after meeting and event after event. And I just couldn't hack it. But even though that job paid very well, I was actually pretty excited that I had the sort of get out of jail free card to leave this profession and and be absolved of saying, oh, he quit. Well, I didn't quit. I just couldn't do it anymore. And so I looked back on those experiences and wondered what it was. More importantly, I wondered, 
why is it so culturally, at least in the Western culture, why is it so culturally acceptable to kind of trash talk work? Why, why, why are we all so eager to not have to work anymore? It seems like the whole focus of a 40-year career at work is the last 15 years of not working. Like that to me seems so backward mm. thinking that I thought if I get the opportunity, I want to try to make a bigger impact on the world. Certainly sales allowed me by every sale, you know, if you take Zig Ziglar's approach to it, every sale I created, there was an order form and somebody had to print those order forms and a trucker had to bring the product from here to there. So yes, it created jobs and it impacted the world. But what I get to do now, speaking to organizations and helping organizations create a tip jar culture, one where the people are active participants in the experience, that scales 100x what I could do as an employee. Um, and I think the reason I'm passionate about it is because I, part laziness, if I'm honest, I don't want to <laughs> lie to everybody listening. Part of it was me just being lazy and I'll own that. But part of it was that the pay was so good. It was hard to justify leaving. Yeah. And I got into that routine, like I spoke about at the top of the show, that I just sort of muscled through each day because it was easier to stay. It took less courage to stay than it did to leave. And I want to be that metaphorical permission slip for my audience. I want to be that dose of courage for the leaders in the audience to say, it doesn't have to be this way. And it's easier to change than we've been led to believe. Greg, what are the... What's the dividing line? Or maybe it's a, a real like blurry gray line between creating the, the type of job or the type of role or the type of experience at work that you, you want to help you thrive and leaving like you did to go find that. When do we stay and when do we go? I guess is. I'm, is I'm the <laughs> yeah, I'm so glad you're asking this question, Michael. The first and sort of very general broad strokes answer is it is a very personal decision. Right. There, there is no bright line. However, what I believe the business world is woefully deficient in is developing the whole person. And so that perspective shift that I spoke about that's required, that only came as a result of the work I did on myself after I lost my voice. For me, for a singer, that was a death-like experience. Mm. And you may have heard this term post-traumatic growth. That was a very, very large catalyst in my life to do growth work on myself. And it was only through doing that work that I realized, hey, Greg, you dummy, reverse the clock 15 years and you could have sought that perspective in the job yourself. You didn't have to choose this path. You could have done something about it. So I think that we could actually keep more employees if instead of just training better employees, we developed better people, we brought that soft skill development from the classroom into the business world. We taught those skills like resilience and reframing, how to understand the way that our brain works. I mean, if you think about the, the idea of knowledge workers or what the economy is built on right mm -hmm. now, we are all like a high performance race car. Let's use that analogy. Could you imagine a Ferrari being sold without an engine? It would probably sell for a fraction of the no price. <laughs> Most of us are Ferraris walking about the world with very little understanding of how our engine mm. works. And many people would say, I don't care. And I think therein lies a big part of the problem is that we are conditioned, just like we're conditioned to say, hey, work is kind of an obligation. And given the opportunity, I'd rather not. 
Hey, science and mumbo jumbo. That's that's a privileged thing people can study. I mean, if you're a race car driver and you don't know how the engine works, you're probably not a very successful one. And I think that if you want to enter the, 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 the world and be a contributing member of society, and you don't understand how the thing that drives you works. You're probably not going to be very successful. That's not a knock on people who who aren't learning, but it's maybe a little catalyst or a little poke to say, just do a bit of research. Even a little bit of understanding into how our brain responds when we're feeling burnt out or threatened or tired. Gosh, as a parent of a toddler, I feel like I'm constantly in a psychological experiment, you know, trying to figure out how to get her to listen and not be baited into these traps for, you know, negative attention versus positive attention. It's, It's exhausting. But just spending a little bit of effort in understanding that helps me navigate this experience as a parent a little bit better than I would have otherwise. And so to that end, understanding how our brain works, how we interact with each other, interpersonal communication dynamics, mm-hmm. uh, even something as, as beneficial for both parties as teaching everybody in an organization about negotiation. Whether you're the janitor or the CEO, you should understand how to negotiate. These things are valuable, not just in the workplace, but in the world place. And that's where I think businesses are missing a critical opportunity to engage their workforce is not everybody really cares about being a better employee, but I think everybody mostly cares about being a better version of themselves, a better Mm. person. I want to talk about how we as leaders can create that culture uh, to, to give people the space to do that. But before I get there, I want to ask, I'm I'm deeply interested in the moments of self-awareness that come about where you begin to reflect on on who you are, what you care about, the things that drive you, how you came to your ideas and beliefs about yourself or others or the way the world works. It's those moments of self-reflection where everything that you've talked about really comes to a head. And I I want to ask you, Greg, outside of losing our voice... (laughs) How do we foster that environment within ourselves to be more self-reflective? What, what steps can we take to be more introspective in ourselves and understand the things that drive us, the things that we want, everything you've talked about up to this point? How do we get there and have it not be this, um, this the world is caving in on, on me moment? Mm-hmm. There's a question it's a device, I'll call it, that I have started to use. The question itself is, what will this allow me to do? Hmm. Or another way to phrase it or, or put it would be, so that I can blank, you know, fill in the blank. And I call this root goal analysis. I realized upon reflection that many of the goals I came up with when I was doing my annual self-review or my goal planning for Q1 of whatever year I was in the sales world, it was all to appease somebody else. Let me come up with stuff that sounds good enough that keeps me off the boss's radar for the next week, quarter, fiscal year, whatever. And I was really selling myself short and my my employer for that matter, because I didn't create compelling goals. And so if I didn't hit them, that's okay. It wasn't really that meaningful to me anyway. (laughs) And I thought, given this second swing at, at life, so to speak, the second swing at using my voice for something valuable, I wanted to come up with goals that were more meaningful and valuable to me. And I found that putting the words so that I can blank after a stated goal, you know, I, I, I want to buy a Ferrari. 
I don't, but let's just use that as an example since I cited a Ferrari car, earlier. Cars are on your mind today, man. <laughs> <laughs> I want to buy a Ferrari so that I can... Maybe I find the answers impress other people. Well, now I want to impress other people so that I can. Hmm. And as we go down this road of choosing that fill in the blank as the new goal, putting so that I can at the end, we start to see some really powerful insights about what motivates us and what we believe about the world and ourselves. Because many of the goals I would come up with are what I called surface goals. They sounded great to my boss or they sounded great at the bar. Yeah, we want to get a five bedroom house in the suburbs, which will allow me to what? So that I can Mm. what? Do I really want that or do I just like the way it sounds? And the, the, the process ends when we reach uh, what's called an autotelic goal. It's a Greek word. Auto means self telos is goal. So that simply means I, I like to call it the, I don't know. I just want it <laughs> factor. You know, like what's your favorite food, Michael? Oh gosh. Uh, put me on the spot. I love barbecue. So give me a, give okay, me some barbecue so, pulled pork. <laughs> so if I were to say, why do you like barbecue? Man, I don't, I don't know. know. I, I just, just do. do. <laughs> when we get to that point. Yeah. In the conversation, we've reached the root goal. And then we stop. And so for some people, they just, you know, maybe they want to be a millionaire just because I want to see if I can do it. And ask yourself, what will that allow me to do? Just see if I can do it. I don't know. That's okay. Cool. Go for it. There's no bad answer. But let's see if there's a deeper Mm -hmm. answer. That's the purpose of the exercise. Oh, man, that's good. I really like that, man. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that. So let's let's turn it on the leaders in the company then. And and what is the onus on them to create the culture where an employee feels safe, comfortable, supported in being able to to do that exercise that you just outlined? What do we as leaders uh, running our companies, perhaps reporting to a board or investors? How do we create that and still grow and and build businesses? So we can use that root goal analysis at a leadership Mm -hmm. level to set strategic goals for the organization. It gets a little messy when we start talking about publicly traded yeah. companies. I, I'll be honest. And that's a whole separate conversation. Yeah. <laughs> we don't need to but go there. <laughs> leaders can, yeah. Leaders can certainly use this when setting strategic goals. I was doing a, a workshop with CEOs pretty early on in my speaking career. And I asked for some goals to be shared. And, and one leader stood up and said, you know, we want to be the best in the industry. And I said, what will that allow you to do? And everyone looked at me like I had three heads. And I said, I, I, I know that sounds like a stupid question coming from me, but just indulge me. What will that allow you to do? And he paused for a moment. And ultimately, the answer he came up with was he wanted to be able to employ more people in the area, the region in which this company operated. He felt that that was the real benefit, the privilege that he got as being the leader of that organization was as a job creator. I don't think many employees, unless they're comped on growth like that, mm-hmm care whether you're the biggest or the best. But I do think many people can get behind the idea of we want to grow so we can create more jobs, more prosperity in this community so that more people can feed their family. I mean, you can really sell that story to get employees to buy into where the company's going and what needs to be done to get them there. So creating a more compelling goal at at a strategic organizational level. Yes, absolutely. But now let's shift the conversation from goals to culture. Mm -hmm. So the three pillars or the three movements, the elements within a tip jar culture 
I call them, take a sip, fill out a slip, and leave a tip. And these are strategies and, and, and elements from the world of piano bars. These, this is how we got a room full of strangers to coalesce, come together, and become our unpaid choir for the evening. Well, the idea of taking a sip when it's applied to business isn't so much about alcohol. It's about a shared purpose, like when two friends come together at happy hour to get together. They're there for a purpose. What is the purpose of us coming together at work? I'll tell you, a compelling purpose is not creating more value for shareholders. Unless you're a shareholder, I don't care. <laughs> this is some amorphous person I've never met that I picture in my mind as a Daddy Warbucks-esque type person. That's not motivational. So let's find a more compelling purpose, like that CEO did, perhaps. But when that purpose is identified, we have to rally around it and really make sure that every piece of communication from the value statement to the rallying call at each sales meeting on Monday for the sales team or, or all hands meeting for the organization is focused on that purpose. Because too often, companies have a purpose that they paint on the wall of the building and then a different purpose they talk about in board meetings and in senior executive roundtables. And that is yeah. toxic. 100%. So we've got to create this shared purpose. Once an employee knows what the purpose is, they know they're safe in a group. We need grouping. It's, it's a very biological need. And back in the day, like hundreds, maybe thousands of years ago, we needed it for survival because there were bears and jaguars and mountain lions out there. But we need survival today in groups. And the way that we do that is by making sure that we're not going to be that squeaky wheel that gets the grease. We're not going to be that peg sticking out that gets hammered down. So only when an employee knows how to fit into that culture, will they take the risk of standing out, of doing something bold and courageous. That first principle, take a sip, is so critical. Mm. The way we communicate it at the piano bar is not just by telling people, hey, we want you to fill out the request slips and leave tips and make sure you get a drink from the bartender because it's uh, important that your vocal cords are lubricated when you sing. We are then modeling that throughout the night in different ways. So it's important that leaders don't just paint the words on the wall. They live them every single day and they enforce that with middle management. So the second principle, filling out a slip, is about that shared co-creation of the experience. At a piano bar, even though I'm and the other piano players on stage, we are technically the musical experts, right? We've been at the piano bar many more times than, than patrons. We've run many more piano bars than these patrons. We're often bad at dictating the set list. I mean, we kind of know what people are going to request, but that's only because we've done it a long time. If you take a piano bar, uh, if you take a, a, a piano performer off the street and throw them at a piano bar with no requests and say, okay, just play. Most of them are going to play Billy Joel, Elton John. I mean, any, because that's the stuff we listen yeah. to. Well, what happens when you have a Garth Brooks crowd? <laughs> what, I, what do you do? See, the audience is always better positioned to make strategic suggestions. Mm. It's our job to curate those suggestions, but they are better positioned to make them. And when we include those suggestions as part of the night's playlist, now it's not our playlist, it's our playlist and they are so much more bought into the idea of working together singing together having a good time and that fills up our tip jar so we can do that in the workplace 
instead of discounting the things the front line says is, oh, they're entitled and they want this and they want that. Let's make them a part of the creative process. So now it's not what the company wants. It's what we want. When I go into an organization and I hear employees use the word we when they talk about how the company operates, I know they've got this part of the the tip jar culture Mm. process. They've got it down pat. And then the last part is, is leave a tip. At the piano bar, a full tip jar means that we have done a good job for the evening. Yes, we are paid to be there. But to really make the night, no pun intended, sing, to make it special for our audience, we want those tips coming in with a request because we're exerting discretionary effort to to play your uh, four non-blonde song, What's <laughs> Up? That's a high song for me to sing, Michael. It's not my favorite song to sing, but if it's going to make you happy, man, I'll do it. I'm not going to ask you to do it right as long now. As, there's, but <laughs> as long as there's some discretionary incentive along with that request slip. So how does that translate at work? Listeners might be saying, Greg, are are you telling us we should pay the employees for performance? Yeah, but that's not it. Earlier in the show, I said if income is the most valuable thing someone gets from their job, they should really take a hard look at whether it's the right opportunity for them. I think that it ties back this idea of leaving a tip, not just to money, but to meaning, to making an impact. Too often, especially now in this remote world, we are kind of relegated to being keyboard jockeys. We tap, 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 tap on this machine and things go over this invisible internet to somewhere and something happens, but we don't really have a connection with what that thing is or see it come to fruition. I think that's, I was listening to an interview with Bradley Cooper uh, about his upcoming, the movie that's I think is either released or soon to be released about Leonard Bernstein. Mm -hmm. And there's this magical experience that artists have, whether you're an actor, a musician, when you experience something happening that you've created or have taken part in creating, it is so moving and validating that it almost is more valuable than the money. It's, it's like I would do, I remember my first performance when the audience cheered, I thought I would do this for free. If I could, I would do this for free. This is just unbelievable, the experience the energy that I'm getting from other humans. But it, money's important. Life costs money. Yeah. So in addition to a fair income and incentivizing people to perform better, organizations should find ways to connect them with the meaning of the work, with the outcome. And you see this happening. It's funny. You talked earlier about that post. The request slip used to be the domain of the piano bar. But now you look at Taylor Swift concert, Harry Styles concerts, Jacob Collier. I mean, people show up with request slips. They're they're posters that they hold up. And we're seeing more and more on TikTok, all these videos. It's not of the artist performing a song. It's of the artist acknowledging a poster and doing something with it, having an interaction with an audience member because we're co-creating this experience. And if businesses would only take these cues and implement them, and that's what my work strives to do is to bring this, make it approachable and implementable for, for businesses. Cause I, I spent 15 years, I speak the language. I, I understand a lot of the struggles. They would see that that meaning is out there and by connecting the employee to it. So I spoke to a group of uh, civil engineers and they shared with me doing some of the interviews before uh, the keynote for this group that they reach a point in their career around middle management where they're really not going into the field anymore. 
And that's when people start to get burnt out. They're disconnected with the project. They're literally creating communities out in the world. They are literally building bridges for humans, but they're not seeing it. Just like that shareholder value. It's this amorphous thing that I guess is happening out there for somebody else. By bringing that into the real world and making it tangible for people, we get their buy-in and their deep commitment. That is another form of tip that we can leave for our employees. And so the organizations who implement all those three strategies, they see employees flourish. They see talent stay. They see engagement. Man, you have just, um, in your words and from your perspective, you align so much with our mission of employee supremacy here at The Receptionist. It is that leadership decisions are made with the priority of the employees first, the customers second and the shareholders or the the investors third. And if we can, if we can take Michael. our, and our, our just cause, even, even what you talked about earlier, our just cause as an organization is that a company's profits are used to be in service of employees and the community around us to build a world where a company's profits are used to be in service of employees and the community around us. That's something that we can get behind. And all those things you just outlined in the tip jar culture so beautifully align with that, man. I mean, I, one of the things I say all the time is you can't just put your core values up on a wall and they have them make them look nice like the respectful does behind me if you're watching and, and have that be enough. There's got to be action behind that and it has to be something that people can connect with. So beautifully said, man. I, I'm so looking forward to the book. When does it come out? When does the tip jar culture come out? So we just announced the the final cover and we are in the layout phase right now where we're sort of picking the fonts and the way the chapter numbers stuff. look, a lot of the minutia <laughs> it is. It's, it's fun, but it's also like, let's go, yep. let's put it into life. Okay. Uh, so we're thinking early January, the ebook is going to be available. And by February 1st, uh, the paperback and the hardcover will be available on Amazon. And, and I can't wait to share it with the world. Beautiful. We will absolutely make sure we share it with our audience too. Uh, even if this comes out a little bit ahead of the release date, but we'll make sure everybody gets the updated links in the show notes. Greg, before I let you go, can't leave without asking you the question that I ask of all the guests here on the fabric, which is our core values spell out fabric, fun, authentic, bold, respectful, innovative, and collaborative. And I got to ask you, which one of those resonates most with you? Which one of those most resonates with tip jar culture, perhaps, is another way to ask that question. I I think with the tip jar culture, it's got to be collaborative. There was a management, I'll call her a philosopher, named Mary Parker Follett. And she's not known by many, but in in my view, she's one of the most impactful uh, management philosophers there was. Because her belief, as far back when she was practicing in the 1920s, was that power with is always more sustainably effective than power over. And at the time, if you think about the Industrial Revolution, yeah. Business culture was very power over. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) And she was preaching this philosophy back then. And damn it, if it's not so true even today. And so collaboration, we see it in the piano bars. And I'm trying to bring more of it into the business world. Power with is what will win the day. Yeah, this is good stuff. I got to write this down. Hey, Greg, man, great to connect with you again. I know you and I have had a chance to collaborate and connect uh, in, in the past, but man, always good. And you brought it today, brother. I appreciate you. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, Michael. It's great to hang out with you again. Thank you so much for tuning in and watching this episode of The Fabric. If you want more content from our studio here in Denver, Colorado, 
please consider subscribing to our channel here on YouTube. That's youtube.com slash the receptionist app to see more of our content coming out of this space that you see behind me, as well as more content from the remarkable guests and the rest of the team here at the receptionist that we plan to highlight and show you much more of. Join us in the comments. We'd love to start interacting with you there. Please join us and we'll see you on the next episode. The Fabric is hosted by me, Michael Ashford, Director of Marketing here at The Receptionist, and it's produced by our creative manager, James Jordan. If you'd like to give The Receptionist for iPad Visitor Management System a try in your office, jump over to thereceptionist.com slash free trial and give us a test drive for 14 days with no credit card required. See what you think. And until next time, take care.